62 years ago, the U.S. government organized an invasion of Cuba. That invasion was defeated by the forces of the Cuban Revolution. But since that time, the United States has attempted to destroy the revolution by using the most enduring economic blockade in world history. And yet, the Cuban Revolution lives. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. If you enjoy or rely on this show or both, please show your support by subscribing to our show at patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program. We can do this show with you, but not without your support. Today, we're talking with two important organizers with the Cuba Solidarity Movement. First, we'll be talking with Gloria Lariva and then Amina Shek. Gloria is the organizer, the coordinator of the Cuba and Venezuela Solidarity Committee and a longtime leader of Brigades to Cuba to learn and expose people in the United States to the realities on the ground inside of Cuba. Amina Sheikh is a labor and community organizer active in the Canadian peace movement. Gloria Lariva, welcome to the Socialist Program. Hello, Brian, and thank you for the invitation. Gloria, let's talk about what's going on. You go to Cuba frequently, you bring delegations to Cuba, you have, you know, intense knowledge and comprehensive knowledge of the state of things in Cuba. One of the problems really with the blockade, it's of course, mainly for the Cubans, mainly the scarcity imposed on the country by this collective form of punishment against an entire people because the U.S. imperialist government doesn't like the Cuban government and has never accepted the outcome of the Cuban revolution. But one of the problems with the blockade, too, in addition to that, is people in the United States know almost nothing about Cuba. They only get very colorful, demonizing, stereotypical images, all negative images of what's going on in Cuba. And of course, the Cuban government is grappling with the economic problems caused by the blockade. There's also been natural disasters, hurricanes that have exacerbated the problem. Anyway, you know, the U.S. government says, look, the embargo is really for the Cuban people. It's really designed to help bring freedom to Cuba. It's really not that bad. It doesn't deprive Cuban people of that which they need to live. It's really targeting the government. Let's just talk first about the current state of things in Cuba with the blockade. Obviously, Cuba has been a beacon, a point of inspiration for people all over Latin America. It has support from other governments in the world. But here it is, an island country, 90 miles from the United States, the biggest military and economic power in the world, and under this intense, enduring blockade. Let's start there. You described it well that the people of the United States have no idea what the blockade is, 
They've heard something about an embargo, but we refer to it as a blockade because it's far more than just a trade ban. The more than 60 years of blockade encompasses quite a few laws, laws, policies against Cuba. For example, on the issue of immigration, Every time there's any kind of a policy regarding general immigration, whether restrictions or anything, the U.S. makes sure to carve out a special exception for Cubans. And, for example, right now, a very large number of Cubans have left Cuba, the largest number ever, over a quarter of a million people, crossed the border into the United States from Mexico. But that's due to a pressure cooker environment that the U.S. has intensified since, for example, the pandemic. What the U.S. did at the beginning of the pandemic under Trump was to intensify the blockade. For example, Trump passed or signed 243 economic measures against Cuba to try to do Cuba in for once and for all. It's not just Trump, it's the Democrats as well, because for example, Biden has changed not one iota of these economic measures against Cuba. So what are these measures that were passed during the pandemic in order to create a much harsher environment for the Cubans. First of all, Trump banned remittances to the Cuban people. This is a real lifeline from Cuban families, particularly in Florida, who sent an average of $1.5 billion per year to their loved ones in the island to help them out economically. That was cut off completely during the pandemic. The U.S. government in 2019 cut off the oil shipments that were regularly sent from Venezuela to Cuba, cut them off by threatening those ships with eliminating their insurance. And those were an average of 30 shipments that would go. That was completely cut off. In fact, I was in Cuba at that time when President Díaz-Canel appeared on TV on a Wednesday. And he said, the shipments have been cut off because of the U.S. and we will have no oil this coming Saturday. So it's remarkable that Cuba has been able to endure this, even though through great, great hardship. Other measures were, as soon as Trump was about to leave office in January, he declared Cuba a state sponsor of terrorism, which is really the worst measure possible. Because what it does is it also makes it harder for any country to do any trade or any bank to do trade with Cuba or accept Cuba's economic transactions. And so you hear this every day, what the effect is. So I was with a small group of people. We just delivered a major donation of construction materials to the western part of the island where they suffered a major hurricane in September. And we heard from the workers of the items that they're lacking because of the economic blockade. So that's it in a nutshell. And I think what you said in the beginning, that Cuba has endured, has survived, is really a testament to Cuba's planned economy, socialism, and the fact that they make the priorities of the essential needs for people first. When uh, Marx and Engels were writing the Communist Manifesto and thinking about the Socialist Revolution, they thought, well, you know, the revolution will happen where capitalism is strongest. They thought maybe Germany was a kind of a new industrial powerhouse, perhaps in France with its long revolutionary tradition. 
they were thinking really of advanced capitalist countries and that socialism would provide a rational next step after the capitalist system had already developed the means of production. When you think about socialism and the idea of being able to provide all that people need and to eliminate competition between people and to organize society so that human needs come first and that human needs are actually able to be met, well, that requires a certain sort of economic level of development. But what's remarkable about Cuba is not only did the country suffer poverty from the legacy of colonialism and semi-colonialism all those years, ever since the U.S. invaded the country in 1898, But it also suffered from, as did most of the countries in the Caribbean, in Latin America, in Africa, in the Middle East, the legacy of poverty that came from colonial intervention. And then Cuba had its revolution in 1959, and the U.S. was quite sure that they were going to be able to destroy the Cuban government because, look, it's an island. It obviously doesn't have everything it needs to live. It has to trade. If it's an island, it has to import a great number of products. And the U.S. thought, well, by carrying out military subversion, covert operations, threats, and also economic sanctions, the revolution would undoubtedly be destroyed. But during that same time period, Gloria, there was a a socialist camp. There was the Soviet Union the GDR, that's East Germany. There was the Eastern European countries, North Vietnam, China, North Korea. Cuba had like a second world, meaning the socialist world as a place where it could do trade. It could have economic interactions. So by the 60s, the late 60s, Cuba under a socialist planned economy, still suffering again, as I said, the legacy of underdevelopment, was affluent by Caribbean standards. But then the Soviet Union collapsed, the Soviet government was overthrown, the socialist camp went away, and that was in 1991, between 1988 and 1991. And so the U.S. then thought, ah, now this is our opportunity, this is our golden moment. And so they tightened the embargo at a moment when Cuba lost all of its trade partners, lost all of the countries that made up two-fifths of the world's population that Cuba could have economic interaction with. And that was then called in Cuba under the leadership of Fidel, the special period. The, the economy contracted 30%, I think, in a year, unprecedented for a country during peacetime. And it looked like Cuba was on the ropes. And at that time, the Clinton administration, and as you mentioned, a Democrat, not a Republican, tightened the embargo. The Helms-Burton Act was passed. It made it almost impossible. And yet Cuba survived. Now here we are 30 years later, Gloria, the embargo is imposing all of these cruel punishments on the Cuban people. The scarcity is ever present. We know that. We know people are in great need. And then Cuba also, because it's in the Caribbean, is going to be hit by hurricanes. Now, Hurricane Ian wiped out southwest Florida, big parts of it. Big parts of it are still not recovered. And that's Florida. It also had a direct hit on Cuba. And in spite of that, in spite of all of these pressures on the Cuban government, and it's remarkable that it has survived under these conditions, the Cuban government continues to respond. It has also international solidarity from people and from increasingly from other governments now. Can you tell us a little bit about the damage caused by Hurricane Ian in Cuba in September? Let's just talk about that. And also because you just brought 
the Hotway project that you're organizing brought construction materials to Cuba because so many homes were damaged. Let's just talk about the damage, what Cuba's trying to do, what Cuba needs. In September, Hurricane Ian was a three when it hit Cuba in Pinar del Rio province, the most western province of the island. It affected others as well, but it actually sat over the province for seven hours, and it went from a three to a category four. The damage was the heaviest damage that province has ever been hit by. It was massive. The entire tobacco industry was destroyed. There are 11,000 curing houses. Those are from sheds to big barns that are used to dry and cure the tobacco leaves for the preparation. Tobacco is a big source of income for Cuba. It has its famous cigars that are, you know, smoked in many countries except the U.S. unless you sneak them in. And 11,000 of those sheds and houses were gone. So when we met with the economists and the governor's office of Pinar del Rio in February, they told us that for the coming year, 2023, they will only plant half of what they planned earlier to plant because they don't have the means to cure the leaves. It would just go to waste. They said that they hope to be able to build those curing sheds by next year and to resume. But it's a major source of income. And we're talking about three years, Brian, of the pandemic, where their absolutely biggest source of income for the people, for the food, for the health care, for the needs of the people, disappeared as soon as the pandemic was declared. That's tourism, right? Yes, tourism. For example, in 2019, the last year before the pandemic, Cuba received four and a half million tourists. In the first year of the pandemic, they had to cut tourism out completely. No flights into the island. In fact, in the island, it was complete shutdown. Not even taxis or buses could travel. So it went from four and a half million tourists to 125,000 people who entered. That is, it was gone. A major source of income. So people had to tighten their belts throughout the island. Of course, unlike the U.S., people didn't suffer evictions. Right now, people are suffering evictions in the U.S. because of the ban on evictions is gone now. But people had the means to survive, although it was a big hardship. That tourism has not recovered yet this year, even though tourism is completely open because they overcame the crisis of COVID. And in terms of Pinar del Rio, they also told us that much of the agriculture is gone. So what they had to do in these last months is plant the food that is the shortest growing season, you know, the, the food that needs less time to grow and mature. So it's an enormous effort. The thing that's remarkable about Cuba is that people from all over the island have traveled to Cuba, workers, people from everywhere, to come and help out. For example, to help rebuild the houses, they have to use new methods because they don't have the steel, they don't have all the equipment that they need, the materials. So for example, professors from the University of Havana who were engaged their specialty is the restoration of the, 19, the 1700s, 1600s, 1500s buildings in Old Havana, which is a major you know, tourist attraction. They took about 30 students of theirs, and these professors have moved 
to Pinal del Rio. They set up, they found an office, they created dorms out of it, and they've been working nonstop for these almost six months now to help people with new methods of construction for housing. We found other neighborhoods where the workers, the neighbors are building, again, housing using whatever they can. It's a remarkable testament to their determination to overcome any crisis. Although, like you said, they get hit often by hurricanes. It's a constant problem. And when you compare it to Puerto Rico, which has found itself more indebted, which found a president throwing paper towels at them, and it's being uh, depopulated while real estate developers are coming in to uh, create tourism, not for the people, but for profit. I want to go back, Gloria, to something you mentioned about the Cubans who have left. 250,000, I think you said, more than at any other time. And people are obviously leaving because of economic hardships. And probably people who are more middle class, more, you know, have more means or more educated in certain professions, at least, might have other kinds of opportunities. Or maybe they already have families in the United States, so making the trip. The United States would like to. I think maybe depopulate parts of Cuba, as you mentioned about Puerto Rico. It makes all this beautiful real estate very available if the U.S. could get its hands on it once again. But in the case of Cubans, and I want to explain this for our audience, unlike the Haitians, unlike the Hondurans, unlike the Salvadorans or Nicaraguans or people from other parts of the global south who might want to be coming to the United States seeking asylum, if Cubans make it to the United States they get preferential treatment. So if you have people in poor countries, poorer countries coming to the United States and say they're given citizenship or a green card automatically, not because their asylum claim is better than somebody else's asylum claim, but because they're Cuban, that would be like sort of a magnet for immigration. Anyway, let's just talk about that a little bit. There is a law that was passed by the U.S. in 1966, It's called the Cuban Adjustment Act of 1966. And it's still the overall policy that any Cuban who comes into the United States gets instant permission to work from the day they arrive. After one year and one day, they receive a green card, permanent residency. No other immigrant gets that. And they get housing and health care basically social programs provided to them. So it is a attraction. Every Cuban knows that they get this if they come to the United States. Compounded by the economic crisis caused by the pandemic and these 243 economic measures of Trump. A professor from the University of Boston, her name is Susan Eva Eckstein. She has just published a book that's called Cuban Privilege, It's a remarkable study. It's something that has been needed in the movement for a very long time. She details every program that the U.S. has passed to entice immigration from Cuba, as well as the other economic policies that created this pressure cooker environment. And she shows that it's just an absolute exception for Cubans to come. But, for example, during the Trump administration, when the embassy in Cuba of the United States that the United States claimed that the diplomats there were being affected, their brain, that they were very ill because of supposed 
attack, some sonic attack. It's been going on. Now it's called the Havana Syndrome, which has been proven false. But what Trump did as a result of that was he greatly reduced the number of diplomatic personnel in the embassy and forced Cuban diplomats from Washington to also leave. And then with that, instead of people being able to apply for visas to come into the United States, and ever since Obama, Obama was allowing Cubans to apply for a five-year multi-entry visa. So families were able to come into the United States, visit their loved ones, go back home, you know, because they prefer to go back home. And that was a real flexible kind of thing. Trump eliminated that and said, only one time can you go. And then they shut down the visa applications on the island. And the Trump administration said, now you have to go to Ecuador. So a person has to get the money together, which is a, a fortune, fly to Ecuador. And the U.S. State Department said, and plan to stay there for weeks or months because it will take a while. And you're not guaranteed an entry to the United States. Then the U.S. said, okay, now you have to go to Guyana, which borders Venezuela. So they're playing games with the Cuban people. And that's why with this tightening of the entry and forcing people into Latin America, that's why you see this stream of Cubans walking, transporting, paying thousands of dollars to coyotes to come to the U.S.-Mexico border. But unlike other immigrants, they are welcomed with a handshake and all the privileges that nobody else gets. It's such a destabilization effort, and it's so obvious when you break it down like that, Gloria. So the U.S. government tightens the economic noose to make the economy scream, in the words of Henry Kissinger. People can't live. They want to migrate. You have COVID exacerbating it, the loss of tourism dollars. People want to do something. They have to, like, if they can, find a way to have, like, some economic stability in their lives. The U.S. says, well, if you make it to the United States, we'll give you a green card. We'll give you a job. We'll give you social services. But you can't apply for visas anymore, so you have to become this sort of underground railroad through Latin America and make this long, dangerous journey. And all of it is to create the optics of, you know, Cuba on fire, basically. It's all part of a destabilization campaign. And I want to remind our audience that when the U.S. carried out the Bay of Pigs invasion using Cuban counter-revolutionaries and mercenaries, that thing that I mentioned in the beginning in 1961, April 1961, and the Cuban Revolution defeated it, that was just a few years after the U.S. did the same thing to Guatemala because the Guatemalan government wanted to nationalize the United Fruit Company or did nationalize it. So the U.S. carried out a fake, you know, using false mercenary troops in an aerial campaign against Guatemala, carried out subversion, carried out a CIA operation, toppled the government. And 70 to 80,000 indigenous people in Guatemala died thereafter. Right before that, the year before that, the U.S. did the same in Iran when the Iranian democratically elected government nationalized the Anglo-Iranian oil company, now known as BP. And so the U.S. did the same thing. Economic sanctions, destabilization, covert operations, carry out a kind of coup d'etat, and then put their guy on the throne, literally on the throne, because it was the Shah. So when people hear all of this propaganda, Cuba, dictatorship, communism, bad, just put it into context. Guatemala, Iran, Cuba, 
the assassination of Lumumba in Congo, wherever people want to be independent and free people in countries that used to be under the domination of U.S. imperialism or its European allies, they get targeted for destruction. That's what was going on in Cuba. This is a nonstop war against the Cuban people. So when you hear how awful the Cuban government is or the suffering of the Cuban people, remember, this is part of a war. Gloria, I want to go on to another topic, and you've already touched on it a little bit, but I really think it requires examination because we've painted a, a picture that's you know, grim in terms of the economic situation for Cuba. Then they lose tourism. Then they lose all the tourist dollars, hard currency, making it life even more unbearable. But they were also threatened with COVID. I mean, the actual you know, potential of having mass casualties in Cuba. And again, under the conditions of the embargo, how do they get a vaccine? Well, Cuba because the government actually does care about the people and is organized and has become very, they've thought everything through in terms of how to survive, they actually created their own vaccines. It's a remarkable success story. Let's talk about that. Exactly, Brian. Cuba actually produced, developed and produced five lines of vaccine against the COVID virus. And three of them are in active use and production. So, the country is completely vaccinated. It's the highest rate of vaccination in the world. In fact, Cuba for many months was the only country that vaccinated two-year-olds and then even younger after that. But the people also have such great confidence in their scientists and their healthcare system that they were anxious to get vaccinated. And there was no debate whatsoever in the country. There was no movement of people who didn't want to get vaccinated. And that's why the effect was very evident. In the first year of the pandemic, before the, any vaccine was produced anywhere, Cuba only had 146 deaths in nine months because the country was shut down because people had their masking and they were isolated. The second year, however, because some of the entry was allowed from Miami, the families came in, it was very, very, very difficult. This is before the development of the vaccine. And some 8,000 people died versus 146 in the first year. But in April of that year, 2021, President Diaz-Canel met with the scientists and said, we need you to develop a vaccine to fight this. Now, China had provided the information about the vaccine so that scientists could develop vaccine to it. And they worked nonstop so I was in Cuba when the flights were starting to be allowed, very limited flights. You had to be in isolation for a week before you could go out into the public in 2021. And the vaccination was not begun yet until July. And the numbers of positive cases and deaths was just going up and up and up. From a handful of positive cases in 2020, I was there in June, for example, when the number of positive cases per day was 1,000, then 2,000. And people would watch TV every morning and they were shocked. Oh, my God, 1,000 people positive, you know, maybe 20 people dying. But by July... It was creeping up to 5,000 positive cases. And of course, that's when the U.S. decided this is the time to strike and why this CIA-financed demonstration of July 11 took place because they thought this is such a crisis that there will be some kind of uprising. 
So then in August, when I was there again, the number of positive cases, and remember, vaccination started in July, but it was still early. And by August, there were 9,500 positive cases. But then by October, remarkable, with the almost complete vaccination of the population, the country said, November 15, we will be fully vaccinated. We will open up tourism. All the children will go back to school, masked, of course, but the economy is open. And it was a remarkable development because of Cuba's science, because of the doctors, because of vaccination and the confidence of the people. So last year in 2022, from May to October, only one person died. And the number of cases is almost nil. It's a remarkable story. Cuba has emphasized the development during the course of the blockade, the development of its own biotechnology industry. And of course, you know, an emphasis on healthcare. Gloria, you and I went to Cuba, I think it was in 1994, was right after the collapse of the Soviet Union during the special period. The country had basically run out of insulin and there were 46,000 insulin-dependent diabetics. And we were able to gain, sort of through different means, a large shipment of insulin that you and I then brought to Cuba and delivered to the Cuban Red Cross. And it was about a month's worth supply, I believe, if I remember correctly. But of course, that was, you know, still, that was just one month's worth of insulin. When we talked with the Cuban doctors there, I was so impressed with them, not just the doctors, all the nurses, all the healthcare professionals. They said, well, we're having to adjust because if we don't have insulin, we have to try to help diabetics try to use other non-medicinal means to you know, sort of relieve symptoms, diminish the disease level. And so they were experimenting with all kinds of other you know, non-pharmaceutical ways of dealing with diabetes. And they even told us at that time, we think we're becoming better doctors because we're dealing with this scarcity and these hardships. Of course, it was terrible that they had to have such a sort of incentive being the terrible cruelty of the U.S. blockade. But when you think about the way Cuba has evolved as a socialist project in spite of the hardships, in spite of the scarcity, the emphasis on healthcare is not only well-recognized you know, globally, well-recognized in the Caribbean, well-recognized in Latin America, but also sort of a, a new novel approach to global diplomacy where the U.S. sends bombers and missiles and aircraft carriers to back up its diplomatic sort of demands on different countries. Cuba's sending doctors all over the world in spite of the hardships. Well, Cuba has two parts of its international medical program. One is the internationalism of donated healthcare, completely free to countries like Haiti and other underdeveloped countries that don't have the means to pay for those doctors. But they also have a program which is really the export of professionals. That is the doctors that go to countries that have the money to pay for those doctors in order to provide income for the country of Cuba, mainly to help finance the healthcare system of Cuba. So for example, Cuba had thousands of doctors in Brazil 
and the government gets three quarters of the income that Brazil government paid, and the Cuban doctors get one quarter of that money in hard currency. It's actually much more than they earn inside Cuba. But the doctors primarily volunteered to go and help a people out of solidarity. But in 2018, Bolsonaro, the right-winger, was elected, as you know, and in 2019, he expelled all the Cuban doctors, another one of Trump's measures. That was a loss of hundreds of millions of dollars for Cuba, Cuba's healthcare system. And that happened with Peru, with Panama, and other countries in Latin America. This is part of the U.S. policy to discredit and degrade Cuba's medical income and the export of professionals. Now, Mexico, with President López Obrador, he has brought in hundreds of Cuban doctors to help in the very remote areas where they don't have doctors themselves. And that's a very, very big help. That's an economic help to Cuba. But the other is the solidarity of these internationalists, the Henry Reeve Brigade, named after a U.S. soldier from the Civil War who came into Cuba to help their liberation movement. Anyway, the Henry Reeve Brigade has sent thousands of doctors around the world to provide free health care. And, for example, in 2005, when the hurricane hit, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, I was there several days after the hurricane, and Cuba offered to send 1,000 doctors into New Orleans and to the Gulf Coast to help, and President Bush completely ignored it and refused. That's when the Henry Reeve Brigade came about providing health care to all over the world, including Italy. Italy was ground zero in the beginning of the pandemic. It was a terrible crisis there, and Cuba sent its doctors. They were regarded as heroes in that country. Gloria, as we start to move towards the end of this interview, I have two questions that I want to ask, and I'll ask the first one. It's about Mexico. You mentioned Mexico. You mentioned the work that Cuban doctors are doing in Mexico. AMLO, the the president of Mexico, obviously it's a one-term presidency. He won't be president again. But it appears that he is prioritizing a campaign to end the blockade on Cuba. Now, most of the countries in the world, they voted again to condemn the U.S. blockade of Cuba. This happens every year. And this year, I think at the United States and Israel, they voted no. Maybe one other country voted no. Ukraine, perhaps it abstained. I'm not, I can't quite remember. But most of the world says no to the U.S. blockade. But Mexico is the biggest sort of country in the region. The Mexican government, the Mexican revolution, the, the legacy of the Mexican revolution as a leader of independence in the hemisphere and the historic connection between Mexico and Cuba. I want to talk about that and the significance of this new campaign by AMLO as he's sort of ending his presidency. I mean, the Organization of American States was created in order to expel Cuba, to isolate Cuba. It wasn't really all the American states. It was all the American states without Cuba. But let's just talk about Mexico's role historically with Cuba and also what you think might be happening with the Mexican government now and what its significance is? Yes, Mexico and Cuba have a very, very special relationship. 
From the time of the Cuban Revolution, the ex-president of the 1930s, the famous Lázaro Cárdenas, who nationalized, by the way, Mexico's oil in 1938, he felt very, very close to Fidel Castro. And he was one of the first visitors to the island after the revolution. But as you said, the OAS expelled Cuba under the direction of the U.S., and Mexico was the one country that refused to vote against Cuba. But under AMLO's presidency, which is a six-year term, he only has another year left, he has resumed that very pro-Cuba attitude, which is really a turnaround from the last neoliberal presidents of Mexico. And so he did bring those medical doctors in for the international missions. He also, as you said, when um, President Díaz-Canel visited Mexico in uh, February, President López Obrador granted him this special award, the highest award to foreigners, the Order of the Aztec Eagle, something that Nelson Mandela received, for example. And he declared that Mexico is going to wage an open campaign as the government against the blockade. Now, I think the U.S. is very angry about Mexico's policy toward Cuba, the demanding that the OAS be ended, that it has no place in Latin America, speaking up for Cuba more and more. But the U.S., I think, is weighing the time left in uh, López Obrador's term because you can't run twice as president in Mexico. And I think they're thinking that they'll have an effect in the next presidential election. But anyway, Mexico has been very helpful in other means. When the huge fire hit Cuba's Matanzas province, the super tanker oil fire that killed, unfortunately, 15 firefighters, Mexico immediately sent its best firefighters with that experience of fighting oil fires. They sent all kinds of equipment. Mexico is now helping the agricultural entity of Cuba with a lot of material aid. And there's also other countries, Turkey, to help Cuba's very serious problems with electrical plants. The electrical plants are very deteriorated as the infrastructure of the country is because of 60 years of blockade, the inability to update their equipment. Turkey has seven ships, seven very large ships that are basically electrical plants docked in the key cities, including Havana, that are hooked up to Cuba's electrical system to help them overcome. Igor Sechin, the executive director of Russia's oil entity, Rosprom has just visited President Díaz-Canel in Cuba, and they're indicating that they're going to come to Cuba's aid with regard to oil, which is very, very critical. Iran, Iran is helping as well. So there's a lot of solidarity from certain countries, as well as people's movements, as, for example, you mentioned earlier, our Atue project, which is engaged in medical aid. There's many other organizations around the world helping Cuba because everybody wants to come to Cuba's solidarity to reciprocate for that great internationalism that Cuba has always expressed to the world. Gloria, before we turn to our other interview today with Amina Shek, who is a labor and community organizer in the Canadian peace movement, the movement that's growing, as is the U.S. movement, the movement growing movements in solidarity with the people of Cuba and the Cuban Revolution. Before we turn to Amina, I want to ask you, if people want to do something, let's say they're hearing you talk right now, they're thinking like, 
This is disgusting what the U.S. policy is towards Cuba. Good, there are other governments, Russia, Iran, Turkey, doing something, increasing economic activity. But I'm in the United States. I'm I'm living here. The government is speaking in my name, but I don't agree with the government. I don't think its policy is correct. I think it's unjust. It's imperialist. I want to do something to support Cuba. One thing people can do is to become part of the project that you're organizing. I mentioned in the beginning that you are a coordinator of the Cuba-Venezuela Solidarity Committee, but let's talk about the Hotway Project and real quick, and just how people, if they want to get involved, if they want to either make a donation or they they want to volunteer, how do they find the Hotway Project and how can they contact you? Yes, it's an exciting mission and project that I think people will feel great to be able to help concretely Cuba. Hotway is spelled H A. T, as in Tom, U-E-Y, and then project, hatwayproject.org. Hatway, by the way, is Cuba's first hero. He was uh, a fighter against Spanish colonialism in 1512. Unfortunately, he was burned at the stake, but he is honored for his resistance, and we're very honored to have that name. So, yes, we would really welcome people to contact hatwayproject.org. I'd like to say one more thing. While we in the U.S. are experiencing the great attack on women's rights to abortion, the attack on women in general from the Supreme Court and the government, where we're seeing voting rights decimated, affecting the black population, and the increase of police brutality, in Cuba, as a socialist country, they're moving forward socially. Even in the midst of this economic crisis, they have adopted a family's code, which encompasses the rights of all families as they self-define. It is making completely legal same-sex marriage, adoption by gay couples, adoption by single parents, care for seniors. It's just remarkable. It was adopted by referendum, and they produced... They developed the National Commission Against Racism and Racist Discrimination, which is a nationwide project of all the civil society of Cuba, headed by the president of Cuba, to overcome the vestiges of prejudice, discrimination, improving the situation for black and mulatto people of Cuba, of a way of really advancing Cuba's society. I think this is really remarkable for people to understand in the United States. All right, Gloria, thank you. We're going to turn now to an earlier interview that I recorded with Amina Shek, a labor and community organizer active in the Canadian peace movement. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I mean, you know, Amina, the United Nations voted once again overwhelmingly to condemn the U.S. embargo of Cuba. The U.S. calls it an embargo or sanctions. The Cubans call it a blockade. Given the fact that Cuba is a tiny island, 90 miles from the United States, the largest military and economic power in the world, and it has been blockaded for more than six decades, it's really surprising that the Cuban revolution has the resilience, the capacity to to survive under those circumstances. And the whole world condemns it. The whole world can see what this is. The vote from the 193-member General Assembly was 185 countries voted once again to condemn the U.S. blockade of Cuba. The only countries that didn't condemn were the United States, 
Israel, and Brazil, that was Brazil under Bolsonaro, and Ukraine abstained. Anyway, the world is against the blockade. Let's just talk about what the mood is, the political feeling in Cuba, both from the government, the media, and from the population. I know you're a community and labor organizer. In the United States, we're taught to hate and fear Cuba. Cuba's completely demonized. What's it like in Canada? Yeah, well, thank you for having me. And yeah, I'd love to talk about that. Well, we have to understand that there is a divergence between Canada and the U.S. on policies with Cuba, and this can be seen throughout 50 years. So even though the United States has been an aggressor and has the cruel blockade and has put pressure on Canada throughout the years to, you know, side with U.S. foreign policy, Canadian foreign policy has been completely opposite of the United States. And what I mean by that is really since the War of Independence, Canada and Cuba have had a relationship and the relationship got deeper actually after the Cuban Revolution. And even when we look throughout the years, when we move between liberal politicians and conservative politicians, none of them have really disrupted the relationship between Canada-Cuba. And this relationship, you know, if we look at it, is about business and commerce. So in 1909, the Canadians set up the Department of Commerce and it was established in Havana. And this business relationship obviously is about industry, but it's also fostered friendship. And people really know about this friendship. I mean, Fidel Castro was at the funeral of the late Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau. And that's just one example of the long lasting friendship. And this friendship has had implications, meaning Canadians about maybe about 2 million, if not more, every year travel to Cuba. Canadians are the second largest like tourists after Russia. Cuba and Canada have a relationship with tourism. This is also distinct because Cuba really likes Canadian tourists and is very welcoming to Canadian tourists. I myself had a chance to visit Cuba as a tourist a few years ago. It's just a very hospitable and welcoming place. And it's very important to go see Cuba. And I think for Canadians, what they've benefited from is going as a tourist. You just really get to see people to people relationships and the friendship. And yeah. Yeah. Let's just talk a little bit about what the level of tourism is. I think that when you look at the chart of how many people go to Cuba, before the pandemic, before COVID, there was about four plus million people going to Cuba. And that was a primary source of revenue and for getting hard currency, absolutely necessary for Cuba, given the blockade. By, by the way, before the collapse of the Soviet Union, when the socialist bloc countries existed and provided Cuba with an outlet for trade and aid and diplomatic support and even military support. The Cuban government wasn't that keen on having tourism come to Cuba because tourism often, you know, follows in its tracks lots of corruption and and other problems, other social problems. But after the collapse of the Soviet Union, tourism was a lifeline for Cuba. And Cuba, even though it had preferred not to rely on tourism and to have a diversified economy, it required tourism. And so 
when COVID hit, it was huge for Cuba. One of the reasons there's so many shortages today and so there's so much scarcity today in Cuba is because of the loss of dollars coming from tourists. So about 4 million tourists came before COVID. Then almost no, I think zero tourists came during the middle of COVID. Cuba developed five of its own vaccines with its own technology. It opened its doors, but the flow of tourists into Cuba is still only about 25% of what it was in 2019 before the pandemic. But of that 1.2 million or so people, the biggest group is Canadians. Anyway, let's just explore this a little more. It's good for Cuba and it's good for Canadians. Obviously, they get to go to the Caribbean, but it's also good for politics because when people get a chance to see Cuba for themselves, experience the island for themselves, the sort of demonized notions of, of what Cuba's like, they conflict so directly with the reality that people come back and say, oh, no, the U.S. is actually lying here. Let's just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I do appreciate that you are saying that Cuba has been sort of pushed into relying on tourism. That is true. And that is where the hard currency comes from. And yeah, because of the pandemic, a lot of Canadians were not able to travel to Cuba. But when they do travel, yes, it gives ordinary Canadians an opportunity. First of all, it's a cheap Cheap flights are going from Sunwing, from all sorts of cities, from Deer Lake, Edmonton, Halifax, all over Canada. And it really honestly has given ordinary people, I'm talking about people who are low income in Canada, like a privilege kind of to get away in, you know, Canada has long winters. And everybody I know since growing up goes to Cuba in the winter. And it's not often a destination for richer people. They tend to go to other places in the Caribbean islands, but for the working poor and the working class, they save up and they go in the winter and it's and it's a beautiful destination. And it, and a lot of people, if you ask ordinary people in Canada, they do understand how aggressive the U.S. has been with the blockade and how it affects ordinary people. So if you talk to a lot of people who are just going as tourists, they often pack their bags with extra things, necessities that they know some of their friends. And people have also have long-time friendships with people in Cuba, and they take them a lot of goods. And it's a really beautiful solidarity and relationship that I think that is important. And I think it gives Canadians also political education about, you know, why Cuba had the Cuban Revolution. And I think the Cuban Revolution transcends borders. And this is an example of how people can learn about Cuba by just visiting. And that's why I think the tourism is important. Of course, Canada also has a lot of solidarity organizations. I'm part of one. I recently was elected to the Canada-Cuba Friendship Association. That's been active since the 1960s. There are over 50 solidarity organizations in Canada, and this doesn't even include worker-to-worker -worker exchanges. There is a history of also exchanges between farmers in the prairies and Cuban farmers. So I'm just saying that beyond the tourism, which I think is important. There are delegations that are political, but there's also just solidarity networks and pastors for peace and all this type of 
history is there between the two countries. Indeed. You know, I was working on um, a Cuba solidarity project. It was back in the beginning of the start of Pastors for Peace, IFCO, the Cuba caravans with Lucius Walker and and other Cuba solidarity actions that were taking place in the early 1990s. We had a, a big event here in New York City, where I am at the Jacob Javits Center in 1992. 5,000 people came out under the banner Peace for Cuba, Peace with Cuba. And that was at a time when the U.S. was tightening the news, tightening the blockade, because they thought, hey, the Soviet Union has collapsed. The Soviet government was overthrown. Eastern European governments were overthrown. Now we can really tighten the screws on Cuba. And eventually and quickly, they thought Cuba would be overthrown as well, the Cuban government. And Cuba's economy contracted by 30% in one year. I mean, that kind of economic contraction in peacetime is unheard of. And so it was like being plunged into a war and the Cuban people were really suffering. It's what the Cubans called the special period. But we were organizing activities in solidarity with Cuba and it was kind of like on an emergency basis. And we tried to have a meeting that included folks from labor. And because the U.S. blockade is so cruel and so comprehensive, Cubans from the Cuban labor movement couldn't get visas to have a meeting here in the United States. That's the other part of the blockade. The U.S. doesn't want people to have any contact with each other. So we went to Windsor, which is right across the border from Detroit, and There was a lot of labor support in Canada for Cuba. I mean, I'm not talking just about the Cuba Solidarity Movement, but what you're talking about, that inside Canada's labor movement, there seemed to be a high appreciation for the struggle of Cuban workers and not against the Cuban government, but against the blockade. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, Canadian unions actually worked on and pushed resolutions for the Cuban Five. Like they have done a lot of work and send delegations. And that's really important because sometimes, you know, if you can't afford something, the union will send a delegation to Cuba to learn from other trade unionists. And I think that's important work because it also disrupts this idea that Cuba is an authoritarian regime with no democracy. It's like trade unions are part of democracy. And I think, yeah, a lot of the large public sector and private sector unions do work with Cuban union trade unionists. And I think that it's a really important history of exchange. And I hope that it, we continue to do it. I think with the pandemic, there has been a bit of, of a setback, but I think that work will be continued. I think that a large unions like the Teamsters, the high school teachers union, they will start sending delegations again for brigades. And yeah. Let me ask you about your own recent trip to Cuba. You had the opportunity to visit a mosque. I think people in the United States, again, who know nothing, it's kind of an enforced ignorance about Cuba, they'd be surprised about the fact that there's an Islamic community in Havana. Anyway, talk about that. Yeah, I think, thank you for asking me that, because like I read that the U.S. kind of accused Cuba of not having religious freedom, which is ironic coming from the United States. But like, again, I'm not always 
the best researcher. I didn't know that much about Cuba. My comrade pushed me to go to Cuba in the middle of winter, and she said it was a cheap trip. Let's go. And it was funny because when I arrived in Veradero, our entire like resort was filled with trade unionists. But what was beautiful is that And I don't have this experience often, and I'm sure you're not shocked, but like when I come through the United States and stuff, it's like people don't know really where I'm from. They don't know what I am. People don't know what a Muslim is, you know, and this is the United States. But when I go, when I went to Cuba, it's like everybody, like they would ask me where I'm from and then they would know, like I didn't have to explain. And I remember like somebody became our friend there And he like told me that, oh, let me show you a mosque. And he showed me the mosque in Havana. And it was like a beautiful mosque. And it's named the Abdullah Mosque in Old Havana. And yeah, I just, it was important for me to see because you have all these lies and misinformation. And I think that again, like being a tourist or going with a delegation really helps dispel those lies. And, you know, Over the years, I've learned so much about Cuba's generosity. And even recently, we've seen that Cuba is sending medical support to people who were devastated by the earthquake in Syria and Turkey. And, you know, I just think that it's important for us to go see it, to see the truth. And I was really grateful to see that mosque. And, you know, over the years, too, I learned that Cuba... I'm from Pakistan originally, and in 2006, you know, Cuba sent about 2,000 doctors to the northwest frontier provinces when Pakistan was devastated by an earthquake. And Cuba also gave scholarships to Pakistanis to come study medicine there. So this is just another example of its internationalism, and it's another example of their solidarity internally, but like also internationally. Yeah, I mean, a big part of Cuba's diplomacy, and I think it's a heartfelt expression of its actual values and internationalist orientation, is to send doctors and emergency responders all over the world, all over Central America, all over Latin America. I mean, Cuba immediately assembled a brigade and dispatched them to Turkey into the Turkey-Syria border because of the terrible earthquake where thousands, tens of thousands of people more who are stuck in rubble. That's what Cuba does. And it's developed on its own, this biotech medical research infrastructure such that, and it's obviously a government and societal priority. So they developed five vaccines for COVID on their own. They're developing new medicines for diabetes. And I'm looking at articles like this one from one of the progressive organizations, the U.S. blockade of Cuba hurts medical patients in both countries. And, you know, I'm going to, it's true, like American, especially working class folks who have such a hard time getting access to affordable medicine, and there are, the diabetes is off the chart here. I mean, the people in the United States would certainly value it and, you know, be, you know, impacted favorably by it. And back in the 1990s, just to show how this is a two-way street in terms of how harm is being impacted on both populations, when I went to Cuba in 1994, 
I went with a small team of people who brought, we brought insulin for people who had diabetes. And Cuba at that time, under the, the impact of the collapse of the Soviet Union, Cuba had basically run out of insulin. And there were 46,000 Cubans who were insulin dependent. So we convinced Pfizer and a couple of the other companies to donate several million dollars worth of insulin to us. And we went and got a license from the U.S. government. It was very hard and we faced many, many obstacles, but we brought about $3 million worth of insulin, which was one month's supply of insulin. You know, Cuba, the Cuban people are humans. The people in the United States, humans. The people in Canada, humans. I mean, when you get to be in Cuba, when you get to feel Cuba, when you get to meet the Cuban people, when you realize the nature of this blockade, the nature of a deliberate collective punishment against the whole people, it mainly impacts Cubans, but it's also impacting people around the world because the rest of the world would easily embrace and be you know, very favorably impacted by the embrace of Cuba. Yes, I do think that, you know, the blockade and, you know, U.S. interference has really and U.S. propaganda against the country has really, you know, hurt average ordinary Cubans. But I think even with the U.S. being this imperial power, it's like the whole world we see wants to have a relationship with Cuba. And all around the world, we still see photos of Fidel Castro. And all around the world, people talk about, you know, Cuban art music and Cuban literature. And I think that is because the Cuban revolution, it transcends borders, you know, and Cuba's international solidarity with countries like places like Pakistan, you know, that's a third world country that struggles, you know, and that's been impacted by the war on terror. You know, people see how beautiful Cuba is and its generosity and the beauty of its people. And I don't think that the U.S. can take that away. Let me ask you, as we start to move towards the close here, about the Che Guevara Brigade. I mean, of course, for most people nowadays, at least people in progressive politics will know who Che was. He was Argentinian, a doctor by profession. He was with Fidel and Raul and Camilo Cienfuegos and the other Cuban revolutionaries who landed in 1956 on the ship, the boat Granma, and then made the revolution. And later he dies while part of the armed struggle to liberate the people of Bolivia. What's the Che Guevara Brigade? Is it based on Cuban activists? So this year I will be participating in the 29th Ernesto Che Guevara Volunteer Work Brigade. And it takes place from April 27th to May 11th. And it's an annual project led by the Canadian Network on Cuba, which is an umbrella of a lot of different organizations, solidarity networks across Canada. And it is in partnership and collaboration with the Cuban Institute of Friendship with the Peoples. And it's a mutual exchange of ideas. And I think it's a great opportunity for people to bear witness to the effects of the blockade, but also see the resilience 
of Cuban people. And so there is a long list of events that will be happening. And within that week, there are also scholarships available for people. There are scholarships available for First Nation Métis Inuit people as well who would like to apply. So we're really encouraging people to apply. And I think it's just we're just excited about it. And it's been going on for a very long time. And again, the main goal of and the objective is to tell the truth about Cuba, but also to, you know, have fun and experience Cuba as well. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad we had a chance to have this conversation. I think it's really important for everybody who believes in justice to increase their own activity and solidarity with Cuba, to work against the U.S. blockade. AMLO, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, the president of Mexico, and he will be, his term will be ending soon. He's dedicating the next period to building a global, but especially a hemispheric-wide campaign to end the U.S. blockade of Cuba. So far, Joe Biden has retained the 243 additional coercive measures, extra sanctions that Donald Trump imposed on Cuba during his time as president. But if we have Mexico, the people of the United States, and the people of Canada working together, we can make a lot of progress ending this cruel blockade. Amena Shek, thank you so much. Thanks for having me again. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 